0: The first Sunday of Lent is upon us, the 40 days leading up to Easter, the Church gives us this sacred season for reflection, repentance, and preparation. This first Sunday has the focus on the themes of temptation, fasting, and spiritual discipline, echoing Christ's 40 days of fasting and temptation in the wilderness. The first Sunday sets the tone for the entire season, inviting us to embark on a journey of spiritual renewal, self-examination, and spiritual practice to enter the spiritual desert with Christ thus today is or this Sunday will be the temptation Sunday the temptation of the Lord but why did Christ will to be tempted and what does this great combat in the desert with Satan have to do with renewal welcome to scripture commentary I'm Lee Benson Remember to like, comment, share, subscribe, leave a review, do all the things, help me to appease the... Remember to like, comment, share, subscribe, leave a review, do all the things, help me to appease the pernicious and fickle algorithm gods. Also, you can ask me a question and I will answer it on the podcast. You can ask me by emailing me at podcast at gmail.com. So our first reading is from Genesis. We're getting it from Genesis 9 which is right after the flood uh, with Noah. The the floodwaters have kind of uh, gone down, the ark has landed back on earth, and Noah disembarks with his family, and God renews a covenant with him. So unfortunately, even though it would be very, uh, it would be great to get the whole flood narrative for some symbolic reading, we actually get everything after the flood narrative. We get the, the renewal of the covenant. So the the whole of this passage is really about kind of reinstating the covenant that God had made with Adam. That if you look at the language of Genesis, the creation account, and with Adam, and then make the parallels with Noah, what you'll see is God is is renewing that first covenant. It has the same language of uh, be be fruitful and, and multiply and increase and there's this idea of I think of a kind of cosmic renewal or a cosmic covenant because God says to Noah that he doesn't he's not just renewing his covenant with Noah but he's actually renewing his covenant he says with Noah and all of creation there's a few times where God says that he's renewing this covenant between himself Noah and the earth the entire earth so this is the covenant that Adam originally enjoyed which was that it was this this harmony between God man and creation all of creation so that's being restored again so the 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 parallels between the first covenant and the the old or the the covenant with Adam and the covenant with Noah are very strong one interesting note though uh, although this isn't in our exact reading for the day, it's a little bit after this passage that we have. But the floodwaters in, in the flood itself is a recreation of the earth. It, it you know, the, the water dissolves everything and, and brings it back to its primordial state, how it was in the beginning when God began to create the earth. However, the one thing that is not renewed is human nature. The earth itself is, if you look at the language, is recreated, but human nature is not recreated. That although the floodwaters wash away sinful humanity, the tendency to sin, the inclination to sin, is still within the human heart. That remains. So it's not human nature here that is recreated, but it's it's the earth itself. I think there's a deeper commentary here that those who are saved on the ark kind of now inhabit a world that is cleansed from the the pollution caused by you know unrighteous behavior. And although the world has been recreated, the same is not true for human nature. So it's it's not just the exterior world that's the problem, but it's actually kind of this interior uh, interiority of the human heart that's what needs to be renewed. So. At this point the flood waters as we'll see in our second reading are just a type for a greater renewal that they they sort of renew the exterior but they don't get to the heart of renewal in human nature so god renews his covenant with with noah and it's a renewal of again the, the entirety of the cosmos and what this is supposed to signify is the original harmony of creation prior to the fall that the fall has sort of marred earth with violence but now the flood is, is recreating what was supposed to be in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. And God gives us this sort of strange line where he says that as a sign of the covenant between me, God, and earth I will uh, I put a bow in the sky. And it says here that this the sign of the covenant as we often interpret as a as a rainbow is actually a, a hunting bow it's a it's a warrior's bow and it's a sign of judgment actually the bow is a sign of judgment but now by putting it in the sky what god is trying to say is this judgment is no longer pointed at earth it is pointed away from earth that a new creation has emerged and mankind's covenant relationship with god has been renewed. So it says God said to Noah and his sons, "See, I am now establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you." All all birds, all the birds and the various tame and wild animals that came out of the ark with you. So again here Noah is supposed to be a new Adam figure. This will become important, this idea of new Adam what's happening after the flood is a recreation of the earth and a reinstatement of the harmony that that Adam experienced is now supposed to be experienced again by Noah so the theme of flood and renewal and and baptism and such continues on into the second reading in the second reading that we have from first peter he talks about the flood waters uh, that were that prefigured baptism but just before that he says that christ suffered for sins once for the righteous the righteous for the sake of the unrighteous that he might lead you to god so here what we have is christ represented as an example of the unjust suffering servant it's suffering for doing good but this idea of suffering for doing good has a redemptive power because christ has united both you know his human nature and his divine nature, his suffering has a universal redemptive value to it. Suffering and death here is a bit ambiguous. It just says that he suffered once, but the idea that he suffered once, suffered death, is is implied. Although it's not explicit that he's talking about suffering for death, but suffering for sins, Christ dies once for all sins. That's that's what's being implied. But if we if we stick to just suffering you know that you know if we take out the death part this is what, what what we get here is the idea that that it's it's through Christ's kind of entire life through his example of suffering that he frees humanity from sin to live for righteousness that part of of Christ's sufferings is that they may lead you to God that Christ may be a pattern for us to follow and to lead us to God So Christ suffered for sins once that he might bring you to God. That is, that we might have access to God by Christ's example. That Christ can provide access because of his righteous sufferings. This reminds me here, this idea of suffering and leading to God, of letter to the Hebrews, in which Christ is called the, the pioneer of faith. Christ is the archegos, which is a Greek term that is used in, a lot of uh, kind of pagan mythology and pagan poetry of one who is a founder of a city or the one who is the pathfinder who cuts a path and that those who follow after him follow after the founder of the city walk in that path. So Christ is the pioneer or the, the forerunner in faith. He goes before us that we may follow after him and be led to faith in the same kind of experience expanded passage of that letter to the Hebrews talks about that Christ was suffered and and was tempted that he may be set an example for his followers and that just as we are tempted Christ was tempted for our sake as well that's going to become a big big topic or a big theme in the gospel but for now this whole idea of leading us to God is the fact that Christ is the forerunner that he suffered for our sake, not for his own sake, but for us to have an example to follow after. So in the middle of the passage, we have an explicit reference to the first reading or to the, the flood narrative when St. Peter says that it was a few persons, eight in all, were saved through water, through Noah and the building of the ark. This prefigured baptism, which saves, which saves you now, it is the re- not the removal of dirt from the body but an appeal to god for a clear conscience so st paul is or I'm sorry st peter is using a very classic typology he's he's seeing types in the old testament that were prefigurements of the fulfillment in the new testament so here he's saying that the floodwaters were a type of baptism they, they washed away sinful humanity but they were also a source of salvation that those who were saved through the floodwaters were, were brought to God, that Noah was, was actually able to reinstate a universal covenant with all, of hum, with all humanity and all nature because of the floodwaters. Now what he's saying is in baptism, it does the same thing. Now if we recall what we said from the first reading, that human nature was not renewed, that just the earth in a sense was renewed. What St. Peter is now saying is he's elevating baptism saying that what the floodwaters couldn't do the floodwaters kind of washed away external dirt you know they they cleansed the world but they didn't cleanse the inner man what he's now saying is baptism is able to renew that that heart that interior that god says that it is from the human heart it's from the interior of man that sin comes forth so now that Act of The flood waters of baptism that wash away the interior man, the interior or kind of reshape the interior person, that's here now, and it's through Christ's sufferings that He sanctifies the waters of baptism, and is able to. We're, we're now able to actually renew what was not possible in the Old Testament, but we also have the same themes of kind of cosmic uh, covenant, I guess we could say, because. Again, the the covenant in the the first reading was with all of humanity, all of creation. And here we have the the sentence from the second reading. It says, authorities and powers were subject to him, subject to Christ after his resurrection. And that Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. So the right hand, of course, is a symbol of honor and power. And authorities and powers subject to Christ are supernatural beings that influence humanity. So, and together with angels, they represent kind of all cosmic powers, you know, kind of whether good or evil in the universe. So we have angels, powers, and authorities. These are all now subjected to Christ, and they no longer have the ultimate power over the lives of Christians. They're now kind of hidden, you know, Christ's rule is now kind of hidden and these powers will become kind of more apparent in the last judgment either way now with with christ's death and resurrection which we will remember all throughout lent with that comes a a new covenant that is similar to noah's insofar as it is one in which christ is is establishing a universal rule over heaven and earth over the cosmic powers of earth and over the heavenly powers of the authorities, powers, and angels that we have here. So we have kind of a a cosmic Christ, a picture of a Christ who is Lord of the entire universe, heaven and earth. Let's switch over to the gospel for Sunday. So our gospel comes from Mark, and half of it is familiar. We heard it at the beginning of Ordinary Time, where he talks about Jesus preaching after John had been arrested, you know, this is the time of fulfillment, King of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, but the first half is his is Christ's temptation in the desert and unlike Matthew and Luke, it's very small and very succinct. It just says the spirit drove Jesus out into the desert and he remained in the desert for forty days, tempted by Satan. He was among wild beasts and angels ministered to him. very succinct, so we don't get to the three temptations are the three very popular temptations but i guess implicit in the fact that he was tempted by satan we can talk about them i'm going to try to stay close to this particular text in a few years we'll hear from matthew's gospel and maybe we can expand upon it then attempt to do that now but i'm going to try to stick just to the gospel so the spirit drove jesus out into the desert this is right after his baptism so christ is baptized and from there he goes into the desert for temptation and there he remains for 40 days so certainly 40 days if you've read scripture a lot that it's a that's a big number it recalls um, israel's uh temptation in the desert there you know they were there for 40 years We have 40 days then we have the 40-day fast of moses in the wilderness of sinai you also have the same fasting of elijah near the mount horeb it's a a popular number, we also of course have the 40 days in from kind of Noah, the first reading, uh, the 40 days of the flood, but more specifically tying desert and 40 days or desert and the number 40, is we see that the wilderness is a place of, of trial, that it, there's two aspects to temptation and wilderness, and those are that the desert is a place of God's revelation and betrothal, that's where he makes his covenant, with Israel again, and says that Israel is his bride. But then you also have the other aspect, which is it's a place of testing. The fact he was, he, he's tested by Satan certainly evokes the same temptation and testing that we have of Israel in the desert, that their time throughout their time in the desert, they tempt God in a way. And they're also perhaps tempted by their surroundings to abandon God. So there's this adversarial element. That's what Satan is called in in the Greek, kind of an a- adversary. So Christ, so Christ and the devil here are in this, as many church fathers will call it, the great combat of of adversaries. So we might ask, why was Christ tempted? Why was he tempted in the desert? And it seems as though I would say there is a a universal law. There's a law of nature in the universe that you cannot win a cr- crown of glory, you cannot be successful if you do not undergo trial and temptation. You know, I think temptation is sometimes is, is fraught with all different kinds of meanings, but I would say temptation just in a simple way is a, a call or an inclination to go off of whatever path you're on. So you might think of athletes or something like that, that they can only become the pinnacle of what they are or the pinnacle of their sport, by extreme discipline. And part of, the, and part of that discipline is pain and suffering, because in order to say yes to something, they have to say no to many other things. So perhaps they're tempted at times to take an easier way, or perhaps not to practice so much, or something like that. But th- it seems as though there's a, a universal law that if you want to grow in perfection, in the spiritual life, or even in the natural world, you have to suffer and you have to undergo go trial and temptation. I would say that in some sense, when, if, if we're keeping with the idea of renewal and temptation, that temptation makes us a new creation. The temptation makes kind of the potential and us potentiality active and actual. St. John of the Cross talks about this all the time when he talks about trial and temptation that God gives us that it's in these moments that god is is testing the soul that god is drawing the soul to higher things but in order to do that he he has to kind of see how to see what we're made of and in temptation with our ability to say no to something we've activated the yes to something greater this is not to say we should seek out temptation but that in a very real sense temptation purifies the soul that it's the as many spiritual writers will refer to it as, temptation is the, the fire and the hammer that molds us into something new. Again, temptation renews and makes us actually a different creation. On the other side of conquering a temptation is a different person existentially. That it seems as though we cannot reach the heights of perfection without suffering. We have to be fashioned and molded by our trials and our sufferings into something new. So it seems as though we, we can't serve the Lord until we've been tested. As I talked about in a different episode on a, on a Monday Muse, the option to say no has to be present for us to say yes. You know, it's like if, if we're going to serve the Lord, the, the, the possibility of not serving the Lord also has to be on the table. That's a temptation. And when we say yes, we've, we've kind of, like I said, existentially activated a part in us that was, that was not there, that was only in potential. But now we've, we've become new and have set ourselves on a path. This idea of trial and the desert also makes me think of the hero's journey. There's two elements to the hero's journey I'm thinking of is one is the crossing of the threshold. The moment the hero enters into a land that is unknown, which is usually symbolized by a desert or a deep sea or a jungle, so if we recall that the hero's journey is not something that we simply observe, it's not something that's only in novels or books or movies, but it's actually something that we experience in our own lives, that in this moment of Christ's temptation in the wilderness, is, he's actually saying that if I was tempted, if I've been drawn from the Spirit, strengthened by the Spirit into the desert, so will you. So the, the hero's journey that Christ models, it will also be our journey. So we, we step out from the land of the known, the comfort, into the unknown. And in the unknown, that's where we experience what the hero's journey will call the road of trials. We, we begin to experience hardships. This is where we're, we're tested. You know, if you think of every, every uh, hero movie, there's always an element where the, the hero has to prove his stuff through combat or a trial. But what's also interesting is in this moment of trial for the hero, he's usually aided by some sort of magical device, they say, or you know, that Joseph Campbell will say. Uh, he's, he's aided by advice or some sort of supernatural helper he met just before entering the land of of trial. And for us, that's the supernatural help is the Holy Spirit. Right before Christ goes into the desert, he's baptized. And that's like us. We're baptized. We're given the the fullness of the Trinity dwelling indwelling in our souls, that's our supernatural help. It also says in our reading that angels minister to him, and that's our supernatural help as well. That's our guardian angels that aid us by their prayers and their guidance once we enter the realm of temptation and trial, that we don't go it alone. And it seems here even Christ didn't. Of course, Christ is fully God, fully man, so he has his, the, the, the interaction of both of those but in his human nature, he's sustained by the angels. That's what we see also in the Garden of Gethsemane when an angel comes and comforts Christ in his agony, that in his human nature, he is aided by the supernatural forces of angels that are around him. So speaking of angels, I want to hit on something here in the in the gospel where it says that he was among wild beasts and angels ministered to him. So Christ is kind of in the middle between wild beasts and the angels ministering to him if we think back to the first reading remember god said he he remade a covenant with tame and wild animals and all of creation so all of creation angels and the wild animals that in this moment christ is both the new adam and the new noah he's noah in that after the flood noah had this covenant here but he's also adam Adam enjoyed the, the original harmony of all creation. So Christ is among the, 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 the wild animals as Adam was, but is experiencing a harmony with them. Another interpretation, a symbolic interpretation we can take is wild beasts are always the passions. They're always interpreted as the passions. And the angelic aspect is always our higher aspirations. So Christ is in between the lower aspects of our animal nature, and the higher aspects of our angelic nature. And that's our experience as well. That's, that's our experience of temptation is we're drawn, we're pulled, but by, um, as many philosophers will call, the animal appetites, the, the animal, the part of us that we share with animals, that part of our soul. But then also the part of our soul that shares our nature with angels, our rational part. We feel kind of pulled between these two instincts, the wild beast in instincts or the spiritual aspirations of, of our you know, rational appetites. St. John of the Cross, quoting St. Paul, St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, he talks about the the animal person or the animal self, and, and St. John of the Cross picks this up, and he says that the, the animal person is one who does not perceive the things of God, And that the spiritual person is the person who you know submits to their will will to god so the animal person is one who lives by their senses and the spiritual person is one who kind of lives by their their higher intellect or by the powers of their soul the higher powers of their soul so in this moment of of temptation we're we're pulled between the the animal self of the wild beasts and the higher symbolic angelic self although you know, the truth is we're both of these you know humans are not angels and they're not beasts either they they occupy this middle ground but our, our our state in life is to balance these that we should we shouldn't act as angels because we're not and we but we shouldn't act as beasts because we're not but to realize to to somehow harmonize these two to submit our beastly desires our wild beastly desires to angelic reasoning and to integrate those two Although the flood from the first reading and the desert imagery in our gospel are two very different things. You know, the desert is an absence of water and the flood is perhaps too much water. But both are symbols of trial and chaos. Remember, the, in the hero's journey, the stepping out into the unknown can be either a desert or a deep sea. So in both of these, What's happening is trial and temptation that on the other side is renewal. In the flood that washed away the world, kind of recreated the world, on the other side was a renewal of the covenant. The same thing, although not a renewal of the covenant, it happens in our gospel. You have Christ who goes through the desert and after being tried and tempted in the desert emerges as the new Adam, the one who did not fall to the temptation of Satan, the one who overcame temptation. The desert could be a symbol of death and destruction, like the flood. But death is a instrument of change. That the spiritual desert is an interior disposition. It's a, a it's a detachment from the unnecessary, that we may change into something new. So both the flood and the desert are places, we could say, of desolation and destruction. But again, death and destruction brings about a change, a renewal. So Christ is, is trying to model for us and show us he is the new Adam but we can be in a in a smaller sense new Adams when we are when we are tempted and we overcome the temptations by modeling our lives after Christ that we can experience kind of an, an original harmony in renewal that Adam experienced part of Lent is going into the spiritual desert with Christ that Christ is our again forerunner and model that we don't go it alone we go with Christ as our forerunner, and we go empowered by the Holy Spirit and with our guardian angels as support. That we are like the heroes in the hero's journey, that we enter into the the land of testing, the spiritual desert, or even the flood waters, the deep flood waters, the chaotic the chaotic waters. And we go there armed with spiritual disciplines and practices, that this kind of this gospel this Sunday sets the tone, as I said at the beginning for the entirety of Lent. That we are to use this season to double down on our spiritual practices and our and kind of recommit to following Christ. So I think I'll stop there for this week. Remember that you can ask me a question and I'll answer it on the podcast. You can ask me by emailing me at podcast at gmail.com. Also, please like, comment, share, subscribe. Do all the things. I'll see you next week.